Again, James, this, this book is very convicting. It's very practical, but very convicting. And uh, as, as I've sat in this, this, uh, this study each week, it's been very rich to me. A number of times, um, a number of times I've just been uh, humbled before the word and convicted about my own personal life. And I had to leave the table for studying to, to make something right. And how can you stand up and preach if your heart isn't submissive to the thing? And so if you're approaching this study to know more about the Bible... It feels like a hit and miss series, but if you're approaching the word of God to believe and obey, uh, man, it hits the heart when you walk through James. I love this, this. I've heard this idea a number of times. We know more Bible than we believe and obey. I'm going to say that again. Just let it settle in. We know more Bible than we believe and obey. And so as I've walked through this, uh, uh, I've challenged myself with these two personal questions. Every time I've prepared, do you believe this truth? So I'm asking you, do you believe the truths that we've heard these last eight weeks? And then the next question I ask myself, are you going to obey this truth? So that takes what you know and questions, do you believe it and are you going to obey it? And so I, I challenge you with that. Today we're going to be talking about hurting people. And uh, what, a, what an on-time uh, message right now for where we are. I, uh, it's funny, week one, remember verse two of chapter one, as we walk through this, he's encouraging the church that is discouraged and oppressed and and they're running for their life they're scattered abroad and and he sends this letter to to encourage them that you can count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations that that God is at work you remember week 1 we talked about that reality is James 5 is the same encouragement to hurting people uh Think, think about May 15th, or March 15th. Are you ready? I remember Steve sitting second row right there. Um, you guys were all at home. The staff was here. Uh, I think Blake had a couple guys up here. The band was here. Steve preached. We all did announcements, and we had church here on a Sunday morning. And after church, we sat down right there. You guys were all watching online. I, we sat down. Steve said, man, this... That was the first COVID-19 service here. He said this. He said, man, this thing could last weeks. And some people are even saying it could last months. And we were like, you are kidding me. I don't believe it for a second. Really? Right, Tony? Like, we could not believe for a split second that this thing would last months, let alone weeks. We thought this will be a couple days and we'll get back to normal. Um, so as you... Uh, as you think about it, a lot of people, when that first hit, some people were like, man, we can't go to church. That's socially irresponsible because we'll spread the germs and everybody will get sick and it'll be your fault because you came to church. Do you remember that whole tension week one? Some people were like, this is ridiculous. We, we should not go to church because it's irresponsible. And then other people in another camp said, this is all just made up. The government's trying to hold us in prison. Go to church. 
right? And some areas felt pressure. It became a war, like what kind of irresponsible person? All you have to do is log on to Facebook to see this, right? I mean, I've learned, I've jumped into the pool of arguments online, and I've found that there's nothing good that comes out of it. And so I, now I'm just, I'm the guy on the side of the pool watching it from the outside, right? And uh, I don't need a TV in my house because there's plenty of entertainment on Facebook. But, uh, but it got ugly first couple weeks. And then on May 25th, 2020, beyond our ability to perceive that it could get uglier, it could get more divisive within the body of Christ. I'm not even talking about outside the body of Christ. I'm talking about inside the body of Christ. That uh, May 25th, 2020, George Floyd was a 46-year-old African-American man. He was killed by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin after being suspected of passing a counterfeit $20 bill. And I I think consensus, I, I would believe, I would hope that we'd all agree that the act of killing this man was egregious. It was a complete uh, misrepresentation of law, right? We can, can we all, can I find common ground in the room that that was a wrong thing? And I'm, I'm not going to make you guys expose where you stand on this subject because I don't want to put a line down the middle of the sanctuary and pick sides, but I do want to talk about it, that this, this common ground is whether you, yeah, but he was high. Yeah, but he was a criminal. Yeah, but he got what has come. No, he didn't. It was wrong. Now, people are hurting today. Uh, people are scared. People are angry. People are passionate. Uh, they're angry. Anger is sometimes causing them to do things that, that is beyond reason in some ways. We sitting here in Canova, West Virginia, are thinking, how could this happen? Um, you have made up your mind in this room, right? Can we agree on that? You've made up your mind, and nothing that anybody puts on Facebook has changed your mind, has it? You've made up your mind, and you've declared it on Facebook, and you've argued on Facebook, and now here we stand. Uh, there, there are two camps, I believe, right now in a church like this. There's two camps. There's the camp that says, all lives matter. And some of you thought I wouldn't go here. I mean, I'm new here, so I can just say whatever I want, right? <laughs> some of you in this camp, you... You say all lives matter, including black lives. And you, you make this your flag, you're, flat, you're flying as high as you can, and, and you don't rejoice in an African-American dying, right? You, you're doing this, and, and it's, the problem is you, your stance is a politically divisive stance. But you stand on moral high ground. Uh, we value all lives, including the unborn. That's a moral high ground. You're saying that every human being that walks this earth, the sanctity of life, they're created in the image of God, and that every life matters. 
But you, you know deep down in your heart that that is a divisive statement. So then there's another camp, and it's gotten a lot of steam lately. This camp is called Black Lives Matter, and inside of this, um, they don't hate other nationalities necessarily, right? A lot of the people flying these flags, they, they, they don't hate other nationalities, but it's a politically divisive stance. It is politically divisive. The moral high ground is that all lives won't matter until black lives matter. Right? Until we acknowledge that a black man has the same, right? This is their stance. Uh, I heard a number of times this week that Jesus left the 99 to save the one. And the 99 standing there said, well, what about us? Well, I, I, I love you, but right now the one ha- is in trouble. And so within that mindset, it's a moral high ground. All right, are you tuned in now? <laughs> Uh, I encourage you not to fly a flag this morning. Well, just just set your flags down. I, I can't tell you what to do after you leave this place, but this morning, let your guard down, set your flags down. It's completely justified by the word, your stance. People on both sides of this argument are standing there saying, the word of God supports my stance, All right? The crazy thing, politics always divide. The media desires the division, right? So it keeps you coming back to their station. But when we center ourselves in the word and let the word of God be our anthem, it changes our tune. My desire isn't divisiveness. Shameless plug for next week, by the way. We're going to go into a seven-week series on the book. We're going to take the book of Joshua and compress it down to seven weeks. And, uh, and so looking forward to jumping in. But Joshua, he's standing there at Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? This is a picture of the captain of the army of the Lord. This is a picture of Jesus. And of all people, Joshua leading God's people. Say, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? So what would the response be? There could be two responses. Yes or no. No, that's not the two responses. What are the two responses from that question? I'm either for you or I'm against you. What was Jesus' response? What was, what was the, the captain of the army of the Lord? What was his response? He said, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. It's at that moment Joshua fell on his faith to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? The Lord is not on your side. My question is, are you on his side? Right now, are you submissive to his complete authority and leadership and his word? And so this is what happens. We remember two weeks ago, the wisdom from above is first pure. It's it's first pure, it's innocent. It's then peaceable, it's courteous and considerate. Even when you disagree, it's courteous and considerate. It's gentle, it's not destructive, it's gentle. 
It's open to reason, meaning it's teachable, willing to have conversations, open to reason, an open ear, not an open mouth. It says, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial. That means it's not biased and sincere, not self-serving. And so as we turn the page, people are hurting. Would you agree? People are hurting. All you have to do is log on Facebook and you'll be hurting. Wherever you've flown your flag this morning, there's somebody that hurts you on the other side and it feels in some ways to you like oppression. Let me, let me encourage you that there are people far more oppressed today, but I want to encourage the hurting person in this room uh, with James chapter 5 verse 7. It says this. Uh, by the way, we're going to talk about a plea for patience and then the power of prayer. Those are the two things that we're kind of honing in this morning. Uh, plea for patience. And uh, don't expect, by the way, don't expect life is always going to be easy. Uh, I know I keep referencing your, your best life now. Uh, I'll probably get off that a little bit. But people are pursuing the good life. The reality is it's a half-truth to say that, that God will never give you more than you can handle. That's kind of a half-truth. Right? It comes from this idea he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation he will also provide a way of escape. The problem is it's not about you and your strength. God is willing to put you through tough seasons to crush you. God is willing to allow you to go through a season that's extremely difficult to crush you. Cause you to stop trusting your own ability. Cause you to stop relying on your strength. And in the midst of your darkest hour, God, God shows up in that desperation. It's not about you and your strength to make it through. And God knows your strength. It's about him. I know there's a, there's a guy on this uh, listening right now. He's not here with us, but he's watched every week online. Uh, he's a, a good friend and brother of mine, and he's suffered for 10 years uh, in terrible pain. Doctors can't give him the answer a lot of times to his terrible pain, and so he's sitting at home. I just texted back and forth yesterday, and he, he responded, said, God is good in the midst of my darkest season. God has been faithful, and his will has been perfect, even though this last, these last 10 years have been miserable. I, I want you to think of your darkest season before we jump into verse 7. Think of your darkest season when you were in a very low point and you, you were, had nothing, nowhere to turn but him, and God showed up in your life. Um, my wife, I need to share a, a quick thing before we jump into verse 7. Um, my wife, when we had first moved to Georgia, two young guys, not two young guys, a guy and a girl, and a, a young couple shows up and no kids, loving life, and we moved there. The night after we moved to Georgia, and we didn't know anybody in Georgia, by the way, the night after we moved, we found out we were pregnant we're unpacking boxes, and Brandy finds out she's pregnant. We're like, oh, my goodness, right? And so, uh, like, we were so excited. She was more excited than I was excited, but we were so excited. And, 
and I remember just like how God was wrestling, like working in me during that time. And I got a phone call while I was at the gym one day and it was my wife sobbing. And I, are you okay? What's, what's wrong? And she said, I know something's wrong. And so I ran home from the gym, drove home from the gym, didn't run home. And, uh, and I picked her up and went to the, the doctor and they said, the child is dead. The, the fetus is dead. And uh, I remember it was a couple months into the process. We were new in an area. We'd only been there a couple months. Um, and uh, it caused her to be in a dark season. It's just a difficult time. If you've ever lost a child or you've been unable to have kids, it's, it's very dark uh, season. Um, I remember one week after she had the DNC, she went through the process and um, and we're sitting in a service and the preacher gets up. Uh, he's a good friend of mine, his associate pastor at the church we were serving at. And he preached a message on Hannah. He didn't know my wife's situation. If you know the story, the message is called Divine Delay. That God works in his time and his way. And my wife was uh, humbled by that. And in her moment of despair, she, uh, she acknowledged that I may never have kids. But if that's the will of God, then it's okay. And what she didn't know is that in that darkest season, she was pregnant during that service. During that service, when, when God was using the word to speak to her, she was pregnant. Ironically, our son's name, our first son is Jaden Anaya. Jaden means God has heard, and Anaya means God has answered. That, that out of a dark season, I look over and see my oldest son, and I acknowledge that God is faithful even in our darkest seasons. You might be going through a dark season right now. God is faithful. And so it says, be patient. Be, he's, in, he's talking to people that are oppressed, going through a tough season. Be patient. Therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord... Be patient. Glory is coming. Jesus is coming. Endure it is what he's saying. It's like when your brother or sister is doing something wrong to you. Like you grew up with brothers and sisters. They're doing something wrong and they're caught in the act by your dad. And you're sitting there like, yes, my dad's here. He's going to make this right. He's saying this. Until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how a farmer waits expectantly for the precious fruit. Being patient about it until it reaches the early and late rains. I don't have patience to be a gardener, by the way, when you can just go to food fair. And they have it there, so I'll just get. But those of you who garden or farm, the joy of the crop, the joy of the harvest for all those months of waiting and investing, that's the picture of, of waiting on it. Verse 8 says, you also, just like the farmers, just like what they've done, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. Firmly trust in God. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's eminent. It's here. So do not grumble. That's complaining, that uh, grumbling against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. 
You're not supposed to grumble when you're going through a tough situation? That seems ridiculous. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Philippians says it this way. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. This idea of grumbling, it stems from not being content with the provisions of God. That when times are tough, you look at God as the grumbling is aimed at other people, but it's really you're, you're not satisfied with how God's providing for you. It says, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, when he comes back, I may be proud or be able to rejoice greatly that I did not run in vain. You see this picture of a, of a courtroom. The judge is standing outside the door is what James said. The judge is standing. We're all in the room. We're all getting ready. And at the moment it comes when they say, all rise. And the judge is here. That's what he said. Uh, Turn our attention to the judge. And as an example of suffering and patience, this is the encouragement. Uh, Brothers, take the prophets. Take the prophets uh, who spoke in the name of the Lord. They represented God. They, they spoke his message, and they were deeply persecuted for it. They were, they were in the will of God, but they were deeply persecuted for walking in the will of God. And Timothy, and Paul said to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And if you're walking in obedience and you're walking in the will of God with Christ, we will be persecuted in this world. So behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. The favor of God was on them because they endured extremely difficult situations. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. He richly blessed Job. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You remember the story of Job. He was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. And even though he feared God, God allowed Satan to sift him. He couldn't couldn't touch him, but it said enemies killed all his servants. Another, Another messenger came, or another servant came and said fire from heaven killed his sheep and servants and then right then another one came running in enemies stole his camels and killed his servants and then the fourth servant came running in and they're panting they're struggling says wind knocked over a house and killed all your sons and daughters that's a pretty tough day and said consider him At the end, you remember after all that happened, Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground. And what did he do? He worshiped. He worshiped. He said, it said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Remember, a grumbler is somebody that questions the provision of God. 
Even in the moment of greatest despair, he did not sin against God. And so we're supposed to consider, by the way, the blessing of God. God multiplied his treasure on earth, if you want to think of it that way. He was very wealthy, twice as wealthy as before all this happened. He had seven sons and three daughters. God restored to him everything. And so when we think about the steadfastness and the mercy and grace of God poured out to Job, we turn, it says, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be a truthful yes. When you say yes, yes means yes. And your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. And by the way, this is not talking about cussing, <laughs> although it's, don't cuss. So if that's what you take from the verse, don't cuss. It's okay to not cuss, okay? But that's not what this is talking about. It's, it's talking in the Jewish culture, they would swear on certain things to invoke a greater authority on it. Does it make sense? So if you say yes, that's not authority enough. I can't trust your word. So let me, let me come in bigger with something greater like heaven and earth. Let me swear on heaven and earth. They would never swear on the name of God because that's blasphemy. So they swore on heaven and earth. They, they would swear on Jerusalem. They would swear on their own head. And Jesus said this way, he said, I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Right? Is your name strong enough that when you say yes, people believe that yes means yes? That's the challenge to us believers. I struggled, I wrestled, by the way, this week, because I've always known that this verse is in the middle, verse 12 is in the middle of this passage, and I could never reconcile in my heart, why is verse 12 right in, in line with suffering people, and then there's verse 12, and then there's more suffering people? Why is that? Why was that place there? And it's like it clicked. I had never seen this before, and it, it shocked me a little bit. Uh, Matthew 26. Do you remember when Peter was denying Jesus three times? Do you remember each time he denied it, got a little, like the first time he said it, he said it straight with his word. It wasn't believable enough. So he came in a little stronger and said it stronger. I'm, I'm going to read it to you. I put you uh, some cliff notes on the screen. But it says, now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard a servant girl came up and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, he did. His name says, I do not know what you mean. That's the first one. Said, and then when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. Little servant girls saw him. And he said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it, this time with an oath. I do not know this man. 
He made an oath. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said, Peter, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. It's crazy that when he was getting pinched in with this persecution, his response was an oath. First time it was his word and every time it grew bigger. And so I I challenge you that your name should be strong enough to validate what you say. Your name as a follower of Jesus, when you say it, it should mean what you say. Um, I'm convicted uh, as I was sitting preparing, just a little nudge from the Spirit of God said, John, you struggle with this. I was like, okay. Uh, It wasn't an audible voice. Just want to clear that up. But um, a lot of times my own sons will come up to me and say, Dad, can we go to the park and play? It's like, yeah, maybe. And then stuff happens and people call and I'm in the middle of fixing something or I'm working on something. And, and at the end of the night, uh, I didn't take them. But I said, yeah. You do that too many times, they're going to doubt that your name is strong enough to carry it. I don't know, like it, it starts to convict as you start to think, how many times do I make a promise or say that you will or won't do something and then you fall back on it? You do it consistently, it hurts your name. And so the, the plea for patience uh, from verses 7 through 12, uh, we're going to turn to the power of prayer. And uh, there's a number of things was really stirring to me in this, and I, I won't go much longer. Um, But verse 13 says, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone here suffering? If you're afflicted, what should you do? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? If you have joy in your heart, what should you do? What's the prescription, if you want to call it that? Let him sing praise. By the way, I remember when I was just grabbing hold of Jesus at, a, at my college days, it was the first time in my life that I had abandoned myself to be the pursuit of Jesus, and I was experiencing joy of walking with him. Uh, and I remember working at a camp in Indiana on the weekends. I'd see God work in my life and see him work in the ministry of the camp, and I'd get in the car and drive in the rolling hills of, of west central Indiana, and I would... If somebody passed me, they'd think I was a crazy man, but I just had to sing. The top of my lungs, windows rolled down, middle of summer, and sing at the top of my lungs. There's so much joy in my heart for seeing what God had done in my life and through uh, the ministry there, that I just had to sing and rejoice, praise him. I I hope you have a song on your heart as a follower of Jesus, that when you rejoice, your first response isn't to go do something or hug your wife, but your, your first thing is to rejoice in Jesus. It says that anyone among you sick, if you're sick, what should you do? Let him call for the elders. Who should do it, by the way? The sick. The sick among you. It's not the person that loves the sick person that brings them, but it's the sick person saying, I, I am in need 
I'm struggling. He said, come to the elders and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. By the way, sick, we're going to open this up here, but uh, some people, when they're struggling or really in a dark place or maybe in a tough situation physically or mentally or spiritually, what they do, some people, the last resort, well, I guess all I can do is pray, right? That's the last resort. Maybe I'll have them pray over me. Some people, when they hit a dark season, the first thing they do is say, I want to walk in this passage here. I want the, the blessing of God through my dark season. Um, by the way, sick could mean physical sickness. I was challenged by this as I was studying. Uh, sick in the context of this of people that are weakened by suffering. People that are persecuted, troubled, struggling. Could be physical things that are causing it. Could be stress. Could be overwhelming circumstances. The sick in the context are people that are weary in faith. They're broken. So what's the oil? The oil was was representative of ointment. It's like massaging ointment that that it ministers to a person. I heard one person say, a commentator said this, that it's like when you have bruises, it was a way that they ministered health to the people who were struggling. Uh, oil was encouragement and strength to the hurting. Uh, ultimately, oil is representative of the presence of God. And so in the prayer of faith, will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Oh. We automatically, when we read this, we think of physical illness. I've been uh, serving in ministry for 15 years, uh, previously in other places, and uh, a number of times people who had had terminal news that this sickness is as unto death. They would come and we would pray over them. And, and a lot of times we read this in the context of sick people. Uh, ironically, as we prayed over them, some people lived, some people didn't. Right? Some people were healed, if you want to call it that, not like, you know what I'm saying. Some people were, <laughs> we didn't lay hands and they got healed. But some people were healed, some people went declined very quickly. And so if this is a promise about illness, if this is talking about sickness, it's inconsistent because he said right there, the Lord will raise him up. That's what believe, leads me to believe that this is talking about somebody that is spiritually oppressed. And it could be a physical illness that's causing uh, distress. The greatest need of people that are terminally ill is to be encouraged in the faith. Think about that. We think the greatest need of somebody that is terminally ill is to be healed but from their terminal illness. But what if their greatest need is encouragement in Christ? Uh, we're, we're, all, we're all, like we said last week, we're all going to die Nobody's going to outlive this earth. And so our greatest need, when we say go to the elders, your greatest need is to be encouraged in Christ and to walk in faith. Verse 16, 
Verse 16 says, therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed spiritually. The persistent prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. How many of you learned it in King James and you can't get it out of your head? <laughs> uh, that's like four of us. I thought there'd be more. But I remember the, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And it's ironic that most translations put that phrase as a subpoint in their phrase because you can't say it better than that. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Uh, uh, John, Jesus said this in John 15 said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Whatever you ask, whatever you wish, it will be done for you. Don't read that out of context, though. If you are abiding in Christ and his words abide in you, that this is not just a technicality, you are not going to pray wrongly. What if the reason why your prayers aren't answered is because... You're praying wrongly to spend it on yourself. What if, if you abide in Christ and, and his words abide in you, that then whatever you ask, I, I believe that's why it's calling us to go to the elders. If the, if the word is not dwelling in you, your prayer life is certainly inconsistent, right? It's inconsistent, there's, it's impotent, there's no power, there's no life. The things that you pray morning after morning, night after night, you don't see any change in those things. Could it be because you're praying on your behalf and not praying according to the word of God? Could it be that the things that we say in prayers are just our words as opposed to his words, the overflow of what God is doing? So when your heart is in tune with Jesus, you ask, you, you wouldn't ask anything that's contrary. And a righteous person is somebody that not only knows their Bible, but believes their Bible and obeys their Bible, it affects the way that they pray. So Elijah, he was a man with natural or with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently, intensely. He had the same struggles. He had prayed fervently it might rain, and for three, three years and six months, three and a half years, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. One man prayed, and heaven moved on his behalf for three and a half years for an entire nation. And so James' final appeal says, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, that's the sick person, the person that is not well, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a singer, sinner, in the context, it's the sick among you again, anyone that brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover the sinner's multitude of sins. <laughs> 